Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Welcome to another selection of The Art of Living, a selection of letters from the Debus Correspondence. Among the letters, there are those that offer to the writer great insights and clear expositions of complex and profound subjects in Jewish thought and Jewish teaching. One would expect that this would be the Rebbe's forte. After all, what is the expertise of a rabbi? The philosophy of Judaism the theology of Judaism, the body of Jewish law. And of course, the Rebbe's approach is unique and refreshing. The Rebbe's approach is inspiring, inspired. But then again, a letter is not exactly the proper vehicle for lengthy philosophical discussions and certainly can't treat any subject thoroughly since these subjects are immense. And so we find that even when the Rebbe does offer a, an essay on a subject in Jewish thought, the emphasis seems to be on the writer rather than on the subject. The Rebbe is interested in not the theological question itself, but on who is asking the question, why they're asking the question, and the fact that they're turning to the Rebbe and asking it of him. So in many letters, the Rebbe will say, for example, uh, you really should study the subject thoroughly from the sources, but since you wrote to me, then I will offer some observations. In other words, if by divine providence our paths have crossed, I will not dismiss it without investing something in this relationship. So although the Rebbe does many times suggest that uh, the writer look up the appropriate books on various subjects like the Kuzari or Rambam or Tanya or Code of Jewish Law, but that's never enough the Rebbe also invests a bit of himself and offers a bit of his own essay or summary of the subject because the relationship with the writer is important to the Rebbe. Here, for example, is a letter written to a man in Houston, Texas in the year 5712. In reply to your question, Let me give you a moment, uh, uh, a little introduction here. There is a characteristic expression in in Chabad Hasidus, in the philosophy of Chabad, in Yiddish. The expression is, Alts is Er, and Er is Alts. He is everything, and everything is He, is Him. God is all, and all is God. The writer of this letter from Houston, Texas, apparently is asking the Rebbe 
to explain what these two expressions are, uh, what do they mean, and how are they not a contradiction? Is God everything or is everything God? And so the Rebbe writes, in reply to your question, the difference between God is all and all is God is in the approach and the deduction. In the first instance, God is all. Our starting point is with God. And through study and research, we deduce that God's being is revealed even in material and natural things. Our study of the all-embracing unity of God and his other attributes will lead us to recognize the same attributes in nature and the world around us, the practical results of which find expression and unity among mankind and the practice of God's precepts as the proper application for God's attributes in one's own life. One who sets out on this path dedicates himself wholly to a relationship with God. He is averse to material aspects of life, including even the bare necessities connected with his physical well-being, and tries to avoid them as much as possible. Being engaged in spiritual communion with God, he sees all material and physical necessities, even those recognized by the Torah, as a hindrance to his life of self-abnegation. However, his intelligence convinces him that the material physical world is an expression of the divine being and that in it too God can be found. Let's uh, summarize that for a moment. The attitude or the expression, God is all, is an orientation. It's a way that a person enters into the relationship with God. This way of relating to God means the person is interested in God, not in the physical world, not in nature. He wants to know the Creator. He's not interested in the creation. He finds creation a distraction. He finds the physical necessities of life a burden. He doesn't understand why it exists, why he has to take time out to eat and sleep, to go to work. His interest is in becoming closer to God, having a relationship with God. And so he studies God's oneness, and he studies God's greatness, and he studies God's endlessness. And then in that study and out of that study, he comes to the conclusion that the world is also part of God and that in the world you will find aspects of God's personality, so to speak, in nature and in human beings. And so he comes to the conclusion that there is godliness in the world as well. And that is the meaning of the statement, God is, in fact, everything. Let's continue with the letter. In the second part of the statement, all is God, here the starting point is the outer shell of the universe and all material things that are in it. A study of which will lead to the conclusion that the whole world is part of a cosmic unity and that there is a divine spark that vitalizes everything 
and that consequently there is only one reality, one creator. Hence it follows that he will then serve God while engaged in the material aspects of life. He does so with joy, realizing that it is in them, in these worldly activities, and through them that he recognizes the greatness of the Creator and that they are instrumental in strengthening his relationship with God. Thus we have two approaches toward the service of God. Now before we continue, let me just say, there is another way of approaching this whole subject, and that is to talk about all is God and God is all from a much more philosophical, detached, or impractical approach. In what way is God everything, and in what way is everything God? How is it that God can be everything, including the material and the physical? And how is it that the physical can be connected in some way to God? So philosophically, these are really two ways of understanding God's oneness. The Rebbe seems to be taking a different approach. These are not two ways of understanding God's oneness. These are two personalities. These are two lifestyles. These are two experiences in life. The first experience is that of the spiritual person, that of the mystical person, who is interested only in God and is annoyed by physical reality and considers them a distraction. The second is the person who is interested in creation. He's interested in the physical, and he studies it, and he wants to find the truth behind the physical, and this leads him to an awareness of God, to an appreciation of God, and therefore to the desire to serve God. So both end up serving God in the physical. Only the first one finds that there is godliness even in the physical, and so he turns his attention to the physical out of a devotion to God, which is not natural to him, the devotion to the physical is not natural to him, whereas the second person finds the physical natural, but through this natural connection and interest in the physical, he comes to discover the Creator. Now, if you were asked, which of the two is a higher level? Which would you expect the Rebbe to emphasize and to uh, suggest to the writer? Which is greater? Should a person be spiritual? Should a person be a person of, of faith and a person of spirit and barely tolerate the physical world and tolerate it only because there is some godliness in it as well? Or should a person be oriented towards the physical, study the physical, Respect the physical until you find the truth of the physical itself, and that is that it has a creator and a divine spark from the creator that gives it its existence and therefore come to the conclusion that one should serve the creator. I think most people would expect that the Rebbe would prefer the first, the more spiritual, the holier approach. But take a look at the last sentence of the letter. 
Thus we have two approaches toward the service of God, the first of which is easier, while the second leads more completely to the fulfillment of the objective to make this, the lowest physical world, an abode for godliness. Surprising. The Rebbe says that the first approach, the more spiritual one, is easier, but that the second one helps fulfill the objective more than the first. What is the objective? The objective is to make this lowest physical world a dwelling place for God. It's possible that if the Rebbe was writing to a more spiritual individual, the Rebbe would encourage the more spiritual approach. But this tells us something. An appreciation for the physical that leads to the discovery of the godly fulfills the purpose of creation, the objective of creation, more than if you start off with an appreciation for the godly and develop an appreciation for the physical out of the devotion to the godly. A second letter. This is two years later, and this is to a man in Beverly Hills, California. This is in reply to your letter, specifically your question, what is my destiny as a Jew? Our sages state that each and every soul before coming down to this earth was in the presence of God's majesty. These statements serve to bring out the essential nature of the soul, its holiness, purity, and the fact that it is completely divorced from anything material or physical. The soul itself, by its nature, is not subject to any material desires or temptations. These arise only from the body and the animal soul. Nevertheless, it was the Creator's will that this soul, which is truly a part of God on high, should descend into a coarse physical world for scores of years to be merged with and confined within a physical body in a state and condition which are repugnant to the soul's very nature. All this for the sake of a divine mission, which the soul is sent to fulfill by permeating them, the body and the world, with godliness, to purify and spiritualize the physical body and its environment, and to make this world an abode for the Shekhinah. This can be done only through a life of Torah and mitzvahs. When the soul fulfills this mission, all the incidental pain and suffering connected with its descent to this earth are not only justified, but infinitely outweighed by the great reward and everlasting bliss which the soul enjoys in the world to come. From the above, one can easily appreciate the tragic consequences that flow from disregarding the soul's mission on earth. For in doing so, one condemns their own soul to a term of useless suffering, not compensated for, nor nullified by, the everlasting happiness which God had intended for it. Even where there are brief interludes of religious activity, study of Torah, practice of mitzvahs, 
It is sad to contemplate how often such activity is marred by the lack of real enthusiasm and inner joy, the individual in question not realizing that these are the activities which justify our existence. Aside from missing the crucial point through failure to take advantage of the opportunity to fulfill God's will, thus forfeiting the everlasting benefits to be derived from them, it is contrary to sound reason to choose that side of life which accentuates the enslavement and the degradation of the soul while rejecting the good that is inherent in it, namely, the great ascent that is destined to come from the soul's descent. It will now become eminently clear what our sages mean when they say, no man commits a sin unless stricken by folly. It calls for no great profundity of thought to realize that since life is compulsory, and since the soul which is a part of God on high is compelled to descend into a body, a frame of dust and ashes, the proper thing to do is to make the most of the soul's sojourn on earth. Only a life whose every aspect is permeated by Torah and mitzvahs can make this possible. It is abundantly clear that since God, who is the essence of goodness, compels the soul to descend from sublime heights to the lowest depths for the purpose of the study of Torah and the fulfillment of mitzvahs, the value of Torah and mitzvahs must be commensurate with that essential goodness. Furthermore, the descent of the soul for the purpose of the ascent shows that there is no way to attain the objective ascent except through the descent and the length of time that it must dwell on earth. If there were an easier way, surely God would not compel the soul to descend from the sublime heights, from the seat of glory, down to this, the lowest of all worlds. For only while here, and only from here, in the profoundest depths, can the soul attain its highest ascent, higher even than that of the angels. As our sages say, the righteous occupy a higher level than the ministering angels. Reflecting upon the greatness of the Torah and mitzvahs, particularly as they pertain to our worldly existence, reflecting also upon the fact that the Torah and mitzvahs are the only means to attain the soul's perfection and the fulfillment of the divine purpose, one can come in to find a deep and authentic joy in the contemplation of his fate and his destiny, despite the many difficulties and handicaps from within and without that are inevitably encountered in our life on this earth. And only in such a spirit can we hope to respond to the injunction, serve God with joy, which the Baal Shem Tev made one of the foundations of his teachings. The latter is indeed a cornerstone of Chabad philosophy and is given great emphasis by its founder, the Alter Rebbe, whose liberation we commemorate on the 19th of Kislev in his monumental work, The Tanya, with blessings and the Rebbe's signature. What we have here in this letter is an essay 
a thorough, well-developed essay on what the writer calls my destiny as a Jew. In responding to this question, what is my destiny as a Jew, the answer could have been a more selfless, a more abstract, a more godly approach, and that is, you are here to serve God. You are here to fulfill God's need. That is our destiny as a Jew. You are here to make this world a dwelling place for God, which God desires. And by doing that, you fulfill God's plan, and that is your destiny. The Rebbe chooses instead to speak of the destiny of the individual. When a Jew does live by Torah and mitzvahs, when he follows the commandments and lives as a Jew, what is the destiny of his soul? In other words, what will the final result be, not so much to the world and to God's plan, but to me? And this is the awesome, amazing concept in Torah of reward for mitzvahs. God created the world, obviously for a divine purpose, not for human purposes. The human being himself is a creation, part of creation, and therefore cannot be the reason for creation. So God did not create the world for human purposes. God created the world for divine purposes, which means to fulfill a divine need rather than a human need. It should follow that we are obligated to obey God's commandments and to fulfill God's plan simply because we were created to do so. It's God's world. It's his plan. We are created to fulfill that plan. What choice is there? Yet God did give us choice. He gave us freedom of choice. And more than that, he promised reward, which is an awesome kindness on God's part. The Mishnah says, don't serve God with the thought of a reward. That makes perfect sense. God is our creator, not our employer. It's not like we have an existence of our own, which we voluntarily turn over and devote to God. We have no existence of our own. We are his creations. So if he created us for his purpose, then our excuse for existing, the justification for our existence, is his purpose. We therefore do not think of a reward in serving God. It's only right, and there's no other way to be, since this is our reason for existence. There's no other way to live, no other way to exist, other than in the service of God for which we were created. And yet God does offer a reward, as if to say, I created you to serve my needs, but I will reward you for doing what you were created to do. In other words, God sends the soul down from the highest of heights into the lowest of all created worlds and feels compelled somehow to make it up to us, even though 
this is the greatest blessing and the greatest compliment that we are able to serve God, that we are necessary in His plan, and that we can actually do something for Him. God says, but since it is a descent and it's unnatural for the soul to be in a body, and as the Rebbe says, the soul finds it repugnant, I will reward you for that. I'll make it up to you. And how is the soul rewarded? The soul is rewarded with this incredible feeling of fulfillment. It's not like we are mindless robots or even angels carrying out divine missions and fulfilling God's need. The fact that we have freedom of choice means that we also have a sense of satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment, that we, in fact, get some kind of a fulfillment from doing what we were created to do in the first place. And that's the reward. God doesn't leave us neutral. God doesn't leave us unsatiated by our efforts to serve him. The result of a life of Torah and mitzvahs, which is what the soul was created to do, is that there is an eternity of fulfillment and bliss that the soul enjoys as a reward, so to speak, or as natural consequence of having functioned as part of a divine plan and having done so out of freedom of choice. So the Rebbe is saying to the writer, it is your soul that benefits greatly, quite apart from the fact that God benefits, and therefore not to live by Torah and mitzvahs, to turn our attentions to the physical rather than to the soul, is cruel to oneself. What were the Rebbe's words? It doesn't stand to reason to choose that side of life which accentuates the enslavement and the degradation of the soul while rejecting the good that is inherent in it. So out of devotion to our soul and out of concern for my destiny as a Jew, one should be careful to give the soul what it needs and not to make the discomfort of the soul being in this world any worse than it needs to be.